Now, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Matthew's gospel in the second chapter. We'll be returning to our study of the book of Hebrews next week, but as I said at the opening of our service, today is Epiphany Sunday. And no, as I mentioned, it's not Epiphany quite yet. That's on January 6th. But while there are still two more days of Christmas, it makes sense to mark Epiphany today. And so this morning you heard read the first part of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 at the opening of the service. It's the standard Epiphany text, the account of the journey and visit of the Magi. But since Deacon Marion preached from that passage last year on Epiphany Sunday, I decided this year to spend some time looking at the second part of Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Roger read that part of Matthew chapter 2 a short while ago, and let me encourage you now to have your Bible open there in order to follow along. We're now considering events that took place at least a year, or probably almost two years, after the birth of Jesus Christ. Last week, Josiah focused our attention on the fear of the shepherds that first Christmas night, a fear that was wonderfully met by the angel with these words, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. In Epiphany, we focus precisely on the fact that the good news is for all people. The first to recognize the kingship of Jesus are magi, after all, powerful men from distant Gentile lands who journeyed for many months from the east after seeing the star. Naturally, they went to Jerusalem to search for the child. Only there, instead of meeting King Jesus, they met King Herod. Matthew 2 verse 3 tells us, When Herod the king heard this, that is what the Magi said about the birth of a new king, he was troubled. And while the Magi do learn from Herod that the child was to be born in Bethlehem, we sense from Matthew's narrative that dark things are on the horizon. Matthew 2 verse 7 says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Why did he want to know the precise timing of that star, we wonder? In Matthew 2 verse 8, the text says, Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But we know, and Matthew's readers would have known, that his words were disingenuous. This is Herod we're talking about, after all. As one author notes, Herod had a problem he was racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. 
This incredible mix of contrasting and opposing forces created a fear for his throne that bordered on madness. And it was madness that turned easily to violence. Herod's own brother-in-law became a bit too popular and drowned in the swimming pool at a palace party. Herod's favorite wife had to be murdered along with three of his own sons in a mad drive to retain his crown. Caesar Augustus even said, using a, a pun on the ancient Greek words hus, meaning pig, and huios, meaning son, Caesar Augustus said only partly in jest that, quote, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. At least the pig had a chance of living. So we already know what had been kindled when these men from the east asked this King Herod where this other king was. That's why we're relieved when we read in verse 12 of Matthew 2 of how after visiting the Christ child and worshiping him and bestowing upon him their precious gifts, the Magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod and so departed to their own country by another way. We sense in that the protection of the Lord and rightly so, for Matthew continues in verse 13, now when they had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and flee. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Joseph does, as the angel tells him, with no hesitation. Verse 14, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Once again, we breathe a sigh of relief. Surely the likes of Herod, murderous, violent, jealous Herod, will not be permitted to touch the child who the angel said was a savior, who is Christ the Lord. And it's true. Herod won't get to the baby Jesus. Thanks to the warning of the angel, Joseph and his family would remain in Egypt until the death of Herod, Matthew says. The child is safe. But there were other children in Bethlehem who weren't safe. Herod didn't know Joseph had taken his family to Egypt. So while wonderfully the Christ child was born and rescued, the babes of Bethlehem were killed and buried. Herod's final act in the gospel is the slaughter of the innocents. When the Magi went home another way, Herod heard about it and was livid. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men.
And it runs counter to almost every instinct that we've developed in Christmas time, whether in the world or in the church. But it seems to me that we can only rightly encounter such a text as this with at least a moment of stunned silence. The birth of Mary's son meant that this would happen. There can be no Christmas cheer that somehow gets us through this text. But then I think the problem goes deeper than just the shock, because when we do eventually emerge from our silence, if you're like me, you realize it's extraordinarily difficult to know how to respond to such a text. Why would God allow such a thing to happen, we naturally wonder. We struggle to make sense of it. Now, the number of boys who died in Herod's slaughter isn't certain. It depends on what you accept as a reasonable guess for the population of Bethlehem and all that region at the time. But in the end, it's not so much the numbers that matter. It's the sheer evil of it. The sheer evil in the wake of such marvelous joy that we read so shortly ago in the Gospel of Matthew. How are we supposed to process this? Well, naturally, we do think of the children, traditionally called by the church the innocents. Most would still have been babes in the arms of their mothers. The church, in fact, honors them as honorary martyrs for Christ. In a sense, even though they had never heard of him, because their lives were taken in an attempt to eliminate the one among them who was utterly innocent in every dimension. And though it may not be part of your own Christmastide traditions, many of you will know that each year on December the 28th, the church explicitly observes the Feast of the Holy Innocents, remembering these very children. And certainly it is important and right to remember them. But our minds don't stop with the children. What about the parents? What went through their minds when they heard of Herod's plans? If they even got any advance warning, how did they react? I can't help but imagine there was more violence that took place that day than Matthew records. Or what about the soldiers? Did they all carry out these heinous orders? Did some refuse? Or those that did, what, what fears of their own were they allowing to overrule any sense of responsibility or accountability for the horrors they inflict at the order of a madman? And what about that madman even? Maybe, as many commentators suggest, we're supposed to be drawing a lesson here from Herod himself. A dark lesson regarding the nature of sin and how, apart from God's grace, such evil can take root in our hearts. On this point, one commentator says, 
Herod teaches that a reaction of raw human nature to the kingship of Jesus is rebellion. If Jesus is Lord, then we are not. What follows is Herod's response to a center of the universe other than himself. It is a warning, an example of what can happen to us when we despise grace. If, like Herod, we will only listen to the word in order to find ways of resisting it, then it is not only we who will be hurt, but innocence around us as well. It's a point well taken. And yet, as compelling and as valid as all of these reflections may be, it strikes me that it's not precisely in any one of them that we're meant to dwell when we read Matthew's gospel. Because instead of focusing on any of the characters in this brief, horrific episode, in verse 17, Matthew turns our hearts and minds to an ancient prophecy. Then was fulfilled, Matthew writes, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And in the time we have remaining this morning, I want to suggest that Matthew here turns his reader's attention to Jeremiah at this horrible moment, not to deny or to diminish the suffering entailed in verse 16, and not even to try to explain it, but rather, while acknowledging the depth of that suffering, I think Matthew intends to give hope. You could say Christmas hope, even, because frankly, what good would Christmas be if the angels' tidings of comfort and joy had no bearing on the suffering and pain that we encounter in this text, or even in our own lives? So let's consider now verses 17 and 18 of Matthew chapter 2, and with it, the Jeremiah passage that stands behind it. Now to begin, I grant that the quote of Jeremiah, and it is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, that we find here quoted in verse 18 of Matthew 2. I grant that the quote Matthew references does not seem to end with any sense of hope, does it? Rachel is weeping, and her grief is inconsolable. She will not be comforted. Her children are gone, never to return. What is going on here? To begin with, who was Rachel? Here the prophet Jeremiah refers to the matriarch, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, in Genesis chapter 30, Rachel bore Joseph to Jacob. But it was not until Genesis chapter 35, while Rachel was traveling from Bethel to Bethlehem, that she stops near Ramah, 
Remember the quote from Jeremiah says, a voice was heard in Ramah. And it was there in Ramah that according to Genesis chapter 35, verse 16, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And she delivered a son. And in her dying breath, Rachel named her son Ben-Oni, meaning son of my sorrow. Jacob would then go on to rename this son Benjamin. But significantly, Rachel's name for her son remains part of the biblical record there in Genesis 35. It's of interest then that in later Jewish commentary, Rachel takes on a symbolic role for God's people. She becomes known as the sorrowful mother of the Old Testament. So that on one level, when Herod kills the baby boys in the region of Bethlehem, it seems that that event reminds Matthew of Rachel, who went weeping to her grave at Ramah, not far away. But the layers of sorrow that are reflected in the quote taken from Jeremiah 31, in fact, go deeper than just the memory of what happened to Rachel many generations ago. Because Rama, the town of Rama, wasn't just the place where Rachel had been buried after giving birth to, Beth, to Benjamin. Much later in Jeremiah's day, Rama would also become the place where the Babylonians established a kind of transitory prison camp for their Judean prisoners. It's a lot crammed into just one short mention here, I realize, but the Babylonians were the mighty people of Jeremiah's time who would bring destruction to Jerusalem and exile to the people of Judah in the early 6th century BC. And the town of Ramah fits into that because the Babylonians took their prisoners that they captured in Jerusalem five miles to a staging area at Ramah where the Judean prisoners would be chained together for the long march to Babylon. Jeremiah himself would end up there. If you've read ever Jeremiah, you may recall that later on in Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1, we read the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took Jeremiah bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. That's what Jeremiah sees when he says in chapter 31, verse 15, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. In Jeremiah, Rachel's children are the people of Israel suffering at the hands of the Babylonians. And the horrors they suffered would have been immense. 
families torn apart, mothers lifting their voices in lamentation over their children, many of whom would have died or been lost in the siege of the Babylonians or in the battle or in the forced march north from Jerusalem. Oh, there were horrors known to the people of Israel in Ramah near Bethlehem long before Herod's slaughter of the innocents. Not only at the personal level, mind you, but at the national level, because it seemed like the end of the entire people of God. What hope could there possibly be in the midst of such unspeakable suffering in Jeremiah's day? What hope could there possibly be in the midst of such unspeakable suffering in Matthew's day? And yet, it is precisely here where I think Matthew does bring us hope by quoting that single verse from Jeremiah chapter 31. Because if you have your Bible again available to you, perhaps turn back there to that text in Jeremiah. Roger read this same, this text as well, and it isn't on the surface when you're reading the Gospel of Matthew. But it becomes extremely obvious when you look back at the context, and you may have noticed it when it was read in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 7 to 26, that what's remarkable is that within that passage, Verse 15, the verse that Matthew quotes, is the only verse lacking in hope and comfort. The whole point of Jeremiah chapter 31 is to bring comfort to God's people as they face unimaginable horrors. Yes, the suffering of the people of Israel will be great. The exile and the immense personal suffering that would accompany it would be unavoidable. And yet, Jeremiah chapter 31 is steadfastly hopeful. We won't take time to exegete all of this. I did read a sermon on Jeremiah chapter 31 this week in my study that pointed out nine different ways in which this text from Jeremiah 31 brings comfort to the people of God. I won't list all nine, but I do want to say enough to at least give us a sense for what's going on here in this passage. Through Jeremiah, God has promised the comfort of worship once again. Verse 7 of Jeremiah 31 begins, Thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. It is the nations who in verse 12 shall come and sing along on the height, aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. They would be dancing and singing and shouting. God's people would come back to God's house to worship. God promised them answered prayer. Again from verse 7, God commanded his people to pray, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. God promised to answer their prayers in verse 8. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. God promised preservation. 
When the exiles returned from Babylon, even the weak and the wounded would survive the return trip. Verse 8 continues, Among them will be the blind and the lame, the pregnant women and she who is in labor. Together, a great company, they shall return here. That means, of course, there's the promise of return. Verse 9 says, With weeping they shall come. With pleas for mercy I will lead them back. In verse 31, the people of Ephraim are those who say, You have disciplined me. Bring me back that I may be restored. There is the promise of forgiveness. Verse 9 ends by saying, For I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. Is Ephraim my dear son, verse 20 says, is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. God also promised guidance. He promised to help his people find their way home. Verse 9 says, I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. They would return from exile exactly the way they came. Verse 21, make yourself guideposts. Consider the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. There's a double promise for the people of ransom and redemption in verse 11. The Lord has ransomed Jacob, has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. In Hebrew, both the words for ransom and redeem were used at different points to describe the exodus from Egypt. They're equally apt here to describe the end of the exile. And in that end will be found the Lord's provision. Verse 24, and Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmers and those who wander with their flocks, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. That's Jeremiah 31. And look at the point is not that you remember or even try to work through all the promises of comfort there. Though many of them find special resonance with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the point is that you see that verse 15 of that chapter, the verse that Matthew quotes in the context of the slaughter of the innocents, is entirely surrounded by reasons to be comforted, to find hope. Yes, the weeping that takes place in Bethlehem was intense as it was also in the days of Jeremiah, and rightly so. And yet, the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 16, Keep your voice from weeping, and your eyes from tears. I think Matthew was well aware of the larger context of Jeremiah 31. I think it's possible Matthew had this very verse in mind when he quotes verse 15. Not because either in Jeremiah's case or Matthew's, the point is to deny the depth of the suffering that's being endured. It's not that. Rather, I like how one author puts it. When God told Rachel to dry her tears, he wasn't just saying, there, there, it's all right. He was promising to make things 
all right. The comfort God offers is real comfort, and the joy he promises is real joy, but Matthew was honest about the suffering in which this comfort is given. He didn't conceal the dark side of Christmas. Jeremiah was equally honest. The sufferings of life are many and various. But the prophet and the evangelist both knew that those who mourn will be comforted. Matthew quoted Jeremiah so Rachel would know God's grace in her suffering. It was his way of saying, Matthew's way of saying, that the Messiah has come to bring all the comfort and joy Jeremiah promised. It's not always easy to believe such promises. Rachel's refusal to be comforted reminds us that we will not always feel as though God's promises are enough, even at Christmas time. And that's okay, because the reality is that God promises that our sufferings, however great they are or may be, will not last forever. I think Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31 verse 15 to declare in the face of such real suffering that the coming of the Messiah still means salvation for God's people, even for, I believe, the babes of Bethlehem. I will turn their mourning into joy, the Lord promises his people in Jeremiah 31 verse 13. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Fear not, the angel said, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All such promises must be received the way Jeremiah received them and the way that Matthew here now claims them in the face of such horror. They must be received by faith. Few of God's promises were realities for Jeremiah. Few of them are full realities for us today. God's salvation still remains the future hope of his people. At the end of his prophecy, Jeremiah says, At this I awoke and looked. But nothing had yet changed. The siege of Jerusalem would continue. Jeremiah would end up in Ramah along with the other captives. The people would go into exile. And yet, Jeremiah says, my sleep was pleasant to me. His vision of comfort and joy gave him the strength to keep on living for the Lord even while he suffered. And so it must be for us. There was immense suffering in Bethlehem in the year or two following the birth of the Messiah. Suffering which echoed, in fact, the suffering of God's people in ancient days. In many ways and in many places, that suffering has continued throughout history and into the present day. 
We are right to weep in the face of it. Neither Jeremiah nor Matthew have all the answers to the problem of suffering. But they do know where to turn for comfort. For Jesus to live in Matthew chapter 2, innocent children died. For all to live hereafter, an innocent Jesus must die. The tears shed in Bethlehem inaugurate the reign of the one who will eventually, in the restoration of all things, wipe every tear away. For as the Lord proclaimed through his prophet Jeremiah, I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.